0: Reacting to the world's best science The Naked Scientist News Flash Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist News Flash with me, Ben Valsler Bringing us the latest science news this week is Helen Scales while Sarah Caster-Perry will be taking us back to this week in science history Coming up, how giggling gorillas and chuckling chimps can tell us about the evolution of laughter (laughs) how squid can see light through their skin
1: they looked at those ink sac tissues and they found that there are genes in those tissues that produce proteins that we also find in eyes that are really associated with light detection in the retina and that gives a really good indication that not only are they producing light from these bacteria that they're living with but they are actually sensitive to light as well
0: and we speak to Robert Kennicott, one of the winners of this year's Gruber Prize for Cosmology, about the importance of the Hubble constant.
2: Our measurement actually provides some very basic numbers, how large is the universe, uh, what is the distance scale, and in fact it indirectly provides a measurement of the age of the universe. Uh, but moreover, when you combine it with other measurements, it actually was the work that provided uh, the strong evidence for a dark energy in the universe and an accelerating expansion.
0: Plus, Sarah Custer Perry takes us back to 1958 and the beginning of the use of ultrasound as a medical tool. That's all on the way. Now, we have an awful lot of news from the wonderful animal kingdom this week. And firstly, laughter is a wonderful thing to hear. But the question is, would you recognise it if you heard it coming from anything other than a human? Now, we know that apparently hyenas laugh, but I doubt they're doing it because they find something funny. So it's very interesting to try and work out how these things have evolved. In a delightful study published in this week's Current Biology, Marie de Villa ross and colleagues at the University of Plymouth have found out that what we think of as laughter today could have evolved in our common ancestor with the apes somewhere between 10 and 16 million years ago. To test this out, they've been listening to the sounds that were made by 21 young apes when they were tickled, and comparing them to the sounds of a human baby being tickled. The sounds were then subject to an acoustic analysis that could detect similarities and differences between the sounds, and importantly, could judge how closely related these different sounds were.
1: It just sounds like a wonderful study. I wish I had been the one who could do the tickling. (laughs) Whose job was that? uh, There's a picture, isn't there, I think, in the paper. At least I saw on the website uh, of the orangutan being tickled. It just looked fantastic. But What were they looking for in these sounds?
0: Well, first of all, let's just have a listen to some of them. Firstly, we've got a chimpanzee laughing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lovely one, isn't it? Um, And now we have a tickled gorilla. That's really very different from the chimpanzee, isn't it? it? Yeah. And now one that should be altogether a bit more familiar to most people. This is a tickled human baby. (laughs) oh
1: isn't that gorgeous
0: wonderful (laughs) it is now all in all they analyzed a total of 829 recordings and they looked at 11 different acoustic aspects of these sounds so these were things like the frequency the range of frequencies the number of calls and about they're all in the paper at lists actually what these were and they also looked at whether the sounds were made on the inhale so a sort of (gasps) noise or on the exhale as when we speak or in fact on both
1: and uh, what did they find?
0: Well, they found that there were a great number of similarities, but also some, some key differences. It turns out that we humans are actually much noisier than our ape cousins, which is good when you're on radio, And the human babies produce significantly more voiced sounds. Now, these are sounds that clearly come from regular vibration of vocal cords rather than just a... Whoosh type noise. Oh,
1: I see. Okay, so kind of more deeper down in the throat almost. Yes, a
0: voiced meaning from the voice box rather than just a pant. Right. And the human babies also only laughed on the exhale. They didn't laugh when breathing in while the other apes could laugh both when breathing in and breathing out. There was a surprise finding that while they were laughing, the chimps and the bonobos, which are very closely related to chimps, could effectively control the rate at which they breathe out. Now, that might not seem very surprising, but it's thought to be a uniquely human adaptation that allows us to speak. So normally when animals vocalise, they just breathe in and out at the same rate that they do when they're not vocalising. And being able to control it, you and I at home... When we breathe, we don't have to breathe in and out at the same rate. I'm making this breath last a very long time to make this endless seeming sentence with no punctuation going on. And I can still keep on going and I haven't had to breathe in yet. And
1: Oh, you do eventually. Uh, yes. yes,
0: okay. <laughs> now, also interestingly, the differences seen for human babies were not one end of a spectrum. So it's not like humans are one end of it and then the the different... Fade out gradually as you get The differences for humans were sort of inconsistent With the differences for other apes So otherwise, between all the other apes It's quite hard to tell one from another And then humans seem a bit distinct So next, they put all of this data together to see how closely related the sounds were and created a family tree of laughter.
1: So they kind of fitted the differences in the sounds to differences that we see genetically between all these different species?
0: Well, we can use the genetics to build a a phylogenetic tree. It shows how closely related things are. And they effectively, they, they ignored the genetics for now and just built a similar table for the relationship between the different laughs. And this laugh tree actually fit the genetic tree extremely well it showed that siamang and orangutan laughs were more similar to each other than they are to all of the other apes, and in fact genetically they're more similar to each other than they are to the other apes. As chimps and bonobos are the same, they're closer to each other than they are to us, and humans laugh more like the chimps than they do like the other apes, and that also fits our genetic relationships. Now it's all too easy to fall into the trap of ascribing human thoughts, intentions and emotions to animals. We think of foxes as being sly. Very often I see my cat fall off a window ledge and then look round and I honestly think he's going, well, I I'm, I'm meant to do that. That was what I intended.
1: An embarrassed cat. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: totally. Now, this is called anthropomorphism. This is when you ascribe human thoughts and intentions to an animal. But this paper now shows that when an ape is laughing, it's actually OK to call it a laugh. And this reminds me of a, a lovely joke I heard recently. And I hope you will get this at home. And that's that you should never anthropomorphise animals because they really don't like it.
1: Oh dear, does that make you laugh like a chimpanzee? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to stay in the world of animals for my story, which is about those fantastic denizens of the deep, squid. And uh, the fact that scientists have found that they don't actually only see through their enormous round eyes, but also all the way along their bodies as well. And this is a paper that's been published in the journal PNAS this week by researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the States. And they've been looking at the underside of a Hawaiian bobtail squid. And these are really cute. Seriously, check out a picture (laughs) of them. They're about three centimetres or an inch long. And as far as squid go, they are really quite gorgeous little things. And um, what they have is um, a sort of, uh, in, on their um, ink sack, which normally um, just releases ink when they want to stun predators or, or confuse them when something's come to eat them, they actually also glow. And the reason they do that is because of something which is known as counter-illumination. When a predator looks up at that squid from under, from the underside, normally it would see a very dark outline against the brightness of the uh, the surface of the water but in fact when they when they glow like that it means that they sort of they blend in really they don't show up as a dark shadow um against against the surface of the of the water um and now Margaret McFarlane guy and her team have found evidence that those camouflage organs in the ink sacs are actually capable of not just emitting but also detecting light as well
0: that's really incredible I mean this sort of camouflage is amazing to be able to cancel out your own shadow to mean that things underneath you just can't tell you're there but how how does it work how does the squid make that light
1: well it's it comes out of a type of bacteria um called vibrio fischeri, and that was discovered about 20 years ago and it um they naturally glow and this is uh, in a process called uh, bioluminescence and it's a really good example of a symbiotic relationship in which two species live together and they both benefit from the arrangement the squid have this wonderful camouflage um that the bacteria give them uh sort of an Invisibility cloak, if you like, if you're a Harry Potter fan, and uh, and in return the bacteria get a nice safe place to live and with all the nutrients that they need.
0: Right, but surely if it's if it's a different animal, as it were, or bacteria, then that will produce light regardless, because that's what it does. But how does the squid control it? Surely the squid needs to regulate that light.
1: Yes, they're not just glowing all the time and in fact the um, the tissues around the ink sac that, ha- that control, that contain these bacteria um, actually have the ability to kind of close in around them. It's really much like an eye, it's quite extraordinary, like the iris in your eye can change how much light gets in, this is actually controlling how much light gets out and they're even covered over the top of the ink sac with a rudimentary lens, a clear lev- layer and that even kind of focuses um, the light a bit like a lens in your eye so the squid really are able to match themselves very carefully to the brightness of the sea surface because that'll change with the time of day and, and where they are in the world and so on.
0: Well I guess it makes sense because if they need to know how bright it is around them in order to know how to cancel out their shadow it makes sense that these bits can also detect light as well as emit it.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, what they what these researchers have done is they looked at those ink sac tissues, and they found that um, there are genes in those tissues that are also associated, um, that produce proteins that we also find in eyes that are really associated with light detection in the retina. And um, they also looked um, at these light organs, and they shone light at them and measured the response with an electroretinogram, and that's basically an electrode that you'd normally um, measure the response of a retina when light is shone on it. But they did the same thing with these um, ink sac tissues and found that. Very similar electric signals were also generated by these light organs in the squid. And that gives a really good indication that not only are they producing light from these bacteria that they're living with, but they are actually sensitive to light as well.
0: So could this actually be how vision evolved in the first place, in this sort of diffuse sheet of light detection? And we know that it eventually got co-opted into interesting structures like eyes but could this actually tell us a bit about how vision evolved
1: it certainly could and i think what it's it, the researchers at the moment don't really know exactly how um the the eyes of a squid are related to these ink sac structures and and how that came about but it could be a form of something called um evolutionary or genetic tinkering and that's a technical hmm. term i think that's wonderful um, and that's really sort of the co-opting of um of an existing system an existing set of proteins and so on that are working to, to 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 produce a certain effect in this case cat light and that could be what's going on but we do need more studies to delve a bit deeper into exactly how it is that uh, squid have eyes and they also have these potentially have this uh, ability to detect light all the way along the bottom. I think it also gives us some insight into this symbiotic relationship with bacteria because we are also big animals that have a very intimate relationship with lots of bugs um, because all our 8 out of 10 in fact of our internal major organs have some sort of bacteria living in them. (laughs) They might not produce um, shining light, that might be quite fun if they did but we do rely on them and they do keep us healthy. So understanding more about how different animals and species have lived together and evolved to live together is really quite important for understanding our own health i think
0: that's fascinating and it's probably for the best that actually the bacteria inside us don't produce light because then there's only sort of one route through which it could shine out
1: yes indeed food for thought i think
0: (laughs) (laughs) now back in february I reported on a paper in the journal Current Biology about how birds called reed warblers protect themselves from being parasitised by cuckoos, and in a follow-up paper in this week's uh, Science Journal, Nick Davies and Justin Velvigen from uh, Cambridge University have found out how these birds learn to defend themselves, and they do it by watching their neighbours. Now, uh, as I'm sure most people know, cuckoos are a problem because they lay their eggs in other birds' nests, and so... They let other birds bring them up, it wastes a lot of energy for these reed warblers and there's no advantage to them, they're not passing their genes on. As a result, they've evolved a tendency to mob the cuckoos, which makes them less likely to end up being parasitised, but it is quite costly, it takes a lot of energy and it risks exposing themselves to the predators
1: So what do they actually do? Do they sort of gang up together and and shout and scare the cuckoos away? Is that what these reed warblers are up to?
0: Well, what they do is they make very loud calls and they snap their beaks with a loud clicking sound. In fact, we have a recording of it here So they're shouting, That, that sort of sharp knitting needle clicking is them snapping their beak really hard and they also swoop down at the cuckoos. So they, they physically attack them, and they generally get in quite a flat.
1: That does sound quite scary if you're a cuckoo, but, uh, and it seems fairly sensible for these uh, reed warblers to get uh, upset. But uh, what's new in this science paper?
0: Well, in the new paper, they present evidence as to how the warblers actually learn when to mob and when not to mob, because it's a bad idea to waste your efforts mobbing a bird that isn't a threat, and if there's a predator nearby, you make yourself really obvious. You, that's a very loud thing to happen. So... Armed with a model of a cuckoo and a model of a parrot... A parrot. A parrot, yes. (laughs) Well, they used the parrot as a... a, It would be novel to the reed warblers, so they wouldn't have seen one before, but it also wouldn't be threatening. Um, So that was a good model for that. Uh, They set about observing how different birds responded to each one. And after establishing a baseline for how each set of birds reacted, they allowed the birds they studied to see how neighbouring birds reacted to these models. Now, if the birds are learning through social stimulus, if they're learning from other birds, then the mobbing would only increase in response to the model that their neighbours mobbed. So if their neighbours mob the cuckoo model, then they should mob the cuckoo model. If the neighbours mob the parrot, then they should mob the parrot. But what they found was that when the neighbouring birds mobbed a model parrot, which they could be made to do by playing that sound at them, it made no difference whatsoever to how likely the birds that were being studied were to mob either a cuckoo or a parrot. But when a cuckoo was mobbed nearby, the rates of cuckoo mobbing greatly increased. In fact, naive birds that had not mobbed a cuckoo before would only start mobbing after watching their neighbours do so. And this is probably because female cuckoos have a sort of designated area in which they lay eggs. So... A cuckoo in a neighbour's nest suggests an imminent threat to you.
1: So, really, they're just copying their neighbours, but only when their neighbours have got it right.
0: Yes, and that's the key thing here. It suggests that the warblers are primed to learn new behaviours, but only when these behaviours respond to genuine threats. That's a really nice finding. And it's also been seen in things like macaque monkeys, only learning to respond to a threat when it's genuine. And they learn to be scared of snakes, but you can't teach a macaque to be frightened of a rabbit
1: really i just love the idea of um of these guys wandering around the uh, the East Anglian fens um, with a parrot, a model parrot, trying to scare off the reed warblers. Fantastic stuff uh, indeed. And a,
0: and a plastic cuckoo on a stick. Now, also in the news this week, the winners of the Gruber Prize for Cosmology have been announced. It's the 10th anniversary of the Cosmology Prize, and this year it's shared between three winners. They were Wendy Friedman, who's the director of the observatories of the Carnegie Institution of Washington in Pasadena, California, Jeremy Mould, a, profes- a professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne School of Physics, And Robert Kennicott, who's director of the Institute of Astronomy here at the University of Cambridge. They're sharing the half a million dollars prize for leading the teams that measured the value of something called the Hubble constant, and that's the rate at which the universe has been expanding since the Big Bang. We're actually joined by Professor Robert Kennicott now. So, hi Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you. uh, Yeah happy to be here well you must be really pleased to see your work recognised by such a prestigious award
2: indeed uh, in fact the the phone call was quite a surprise <laughs> uh, but uh uh, the work was uh, very influential. It was done about ten years ago. I think uh, the uh, organizers of the prize were probably waiting to see whether we had gotten the right answer or not. In any <laughs> case, uh, it was uh, it was delightful to uh, have it recognized in the way it was.
0: I can imagine. So, w- what is so important about this number, the Hubble constant?
2: Yeah, the measurement actually ties in to a whole series of experiments that many of your listeners probably know, have heard about over the last decade to try to uh, characterize the expansion history of the universe. It, we, uh, Our measurement actually provides some very basic numbers. How large is the universe? Uh, what is the distance scale? And in fact, it indirectly provides a measurement of the age of the universe. Uh, but moreover, it, it was... Uh, When you combine it with other measurements, for example, of the supernovae at high-redshift, it actually was the work that uh, provided uh, the strong evidence for dark energy in the universe and an accelerating expansion. So these experiments all tie together and yield uh, consistent results, and uh, this was one of the cornerstones of, of, of that series of experiments.
0: And so without this research, we wouldn't be asking the questions that we're asking today. It really was a major step forward in understanding our universe.
2: That's right. Um, I can give a simple analogy. Uh, The uh, measurements uh, that established the uh, existence of dark energy uh, actually tell us how the expansion rate of the universe has changed. It actually slowed down and then it sped up over time, uh, whereas we're measuring the absolute scale and uh, it's actually a difficult measurement if you imagine uh, for example uh, you've looked in on the television the last couple of days you've seen many uh images of Barack Obama uh, standing next to Nicholas Sarkozy and Gordon Brown uh, You can instantly when you look at the screen tell which of these people is the tallest that Obama's the tallest, and you can even get when they stand next to each other get some idea whether he's twenty percent tall or ten percent taller But it's very difficult just looking at the monitor to have some idea how tall these people actually are, whether Obama is six foot tall, six and a half, five foot eight, and so on. And that's our experiment was really designed measuring relatively nearby galaxies and uh, providing the yardstick, if you like, uh, next to these uh, galaxies to actually measure the uh, exact distance, of the, the, the the quantitative distances and the scale of this whole expansion.
0: And will it also help us to understand what the ultimate fate of the universe will be? If we know more about its history, then surely we can predict a bit more about its future.
2: Indeed. Uh, prior to this work, uh, these distances were only known to about a factor of two accuracy. And in fact, the best measurements of the time gave an age of the universe... Uh, derived from the expansion that was younger than the ages of the oldest stars we can measure using other uh, techniques. Um, the 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 result of these measurements combined with the more distant supernova cosmology experiments uh, actually led to several independent measurements of the cosmic age scale that now agree. We've actually over-determined the problem, and remarkably, these discrepant uh, measurements have come into almost exact uh, concordance, and uh, it's almost unsettling. In fact, uh, scientists, especially astronomers, are not used to uh, precise agreement. The term precision cosmology, which is a new term, is something we're still getting used to. And the result of that uh, is uh, the implication. In fact, is as the universe in the future, the universe is actually going to speed up its expansion um, uh, over time as this dark energy becomes more and more important uh, force in uh, driving the expansion of the universe.
0: So, how did your teams actually measure it? It seems like a very difficult thing to come up with.
2: Yeah, it actually boils down to fairly mundane measurements. What we want to do is measure survey distances to galaxies. We want to measure how far they are away in miles or kilometers very precisely. Um, The key instrument that enabled this breakthrough was the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, We use the, 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 the key technique we use is a class of variable stars, pulsating stars, called Cepheid variable stars, whose brightness uh, can be uh, measured accurately uh, when you measure their period of oscillations. And, okay. uh, and Hubble actually had the resolution to actually be able to identify these stars in galaxies at distances of uh, Oh, up to 50 or 100 million light years, and a light year is six trillion miles. So these are vast distances, and uh, it was by actually lay- we essentially laid out about 20 benchmarks and distances in the local universe, and we're able to measure not only the local expansion, but how that ex- that expansion actually changes with distance. We live in an overdense part of the universe. Uh, that has affected the local expansion, and we had to calibrate that out as well. At any rate, so you can think of us sort of being as surveyors, uh, laying out benchmarks and uh, establishing a scale. Our result was accurate to about 10% at the time. Uh, since then, uh, other techniques using cosmic microwave background have repeated that measurement completely independently, and the two sets of results actually agree within a few percent. So we're quite sure we've uh, got it right.
0: That's astounding. And so finally, the the prize money shared between the three of you, half a million dollars. Does this go towards more scientific research or are you planning a well-deserved treat for yourself?
2: you're not the first person to ask. <laughs> uh, and these important decisions take time, you must understand. Of course. So yeah. I can tell you, I, I'm not going to buy a supercar. I'm not going to give it all to charity, but we are going to. I'm going to spend some of it on a, on, a, on one major party for the uh, team.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, um, just in case you happen to be doing the invites at the moment, then uh, you can write to the Naked Scientist at Cambridge University. But no, of course, we wouldn't expect an invite like
2: that. No, anyway. I don't know. I'm a fan of the show, so who knows? <laughs>
0: Wonderful. I'll uh, keep an eye the post. Well thank you ever so much for joining us Robert. That was uh, Professor Robert Kennicott. He's the Director of the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University and along with Wendy Friedman and Jeremy Mould he's just been awarded the Gruber Foundation's Cosmology Prize for measuring the rate of expansion of the universe Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at NakedScientists.com. Now we join Sarah Custer-Perry to find out what happened this week in science history.
3: This week in science history saw in 1958 the publication of a significant paper that began the use of ultrasound as a diagnostic tool in medicine. It was published by the Scottish obstetrician Professor Ian MacDonald and his colleagues in The Lancet and is seen as one of the most important papers in medical imaging history. Ultrasound waves are sound waves of a much higher frequency than we can detect. Humans can hear up to around 20 kilohertz, but medical ultrasound operates at between 2 and 18 megahertz. In modern ultrasound machines, the sound waves enter the body from the probe containing an acoustic transducer, which produces the sound waves. They enter the body and bounce off the internal organs in different ways depending on their density, coming back to the detector as an echo. The time taken for the echo to travel back to the detector allows the depth of the object causing the reflection to be calculated. Solid objects bounce back a different signal to liquids, which is why it's easy for this technique to see a fetus in the womb full of amniotic fluid. Most people would recognise, or may have experienced, the use of sonography during pregnancy to image the baby, but it's also used as a diagnostic tool elsewhere in the body, such as imaging organs like the bladder and the prostate in men to check for abnormalities like tumours. Other forms of ultrasound can be used therapeutically, and in fact this was developed before ultrasound's imaging capabilities were realised, to clean teeth at the dentist, to treat cataracts, and it can even be used to treat benign and malignant tumours. Professor Donald had served in the Second World War, where he gained knowledge of radar and sonar, He theorised that something similar to sonar could be used to look for abnormalities in the human body. And in 1955, he visited the boilermakers Babcock and Wilcox to use their industrial ultrasound equipment, usually used for checking flaws in sheets of metal. He took various sorts of cysts and tumours extracted from patients at his hospital to see if they could be differentiated from each other and from normal tissue like muscle. He had some limited success, but recognised the technique's potential so collaborated with Tom Brown, a medical physicist, and John McVicker, another obstetrician, to refine the technique. Their experimentation and results in examining abdominal masses, like tumours and cysts, were what came to be eventually published in The Lancet paper. It was after this that Donald recognised the use of sonography in measuring fetal growth by measuring the dimensions of the head in utero. Within a decade of the publication of the paper, the use of ultrasound had moved into the mainstream and had already improved. As Donald himself said, any new technique becomes more attractive if its clinical usefulness can be demonstrated without harm, indignity or discomfort to the patient. And given the lack of side effects and its obvious benefits, it quickly became an essential diagnostic tool. Sonography using ultrasound is now used all the way through pregnancy to check the growth and health of the baby and to determine the sex, as well as being important in tumour detection and diagnosis. It's easily portable and easy to use, as well as giving images in real time, so you can watch things like blood flow and the heart beating, unlike other imaging techniques such as MRI that just provide still pictures. There are limitations to the accuracy of sonography, but it has no known long-term effects and is an essential part of diagnostic medicine.
0: That was Sarah Castor Perry explaining how Professor Ian Donald's Lancet paper, published this week in 1958, ushered in the use of ultrasound as a diagnostic tool in medicine. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which featured Helen Scales and Sarah Custer Perry, along with our guest, Professor Robert Kennicott from the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University. The Naked Scientist News Flash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the News Flash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we'll bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and an experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll be back. With another roundup next week, the Naked Scientists newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.